Welcome, everybody, to another episode in our podcast series on uh, the extended public health enterprise here in the U.S. Uh, We're very excited to have a distinguished guest today to help illuminate an aspect of the public health enterprise that we haven't talked as much about uh, up until now, which is our link uh, to the global health landscape. Uh, I'm joined, as before, by my co-host, Nicola Dawkins-Lynn. And Nicola, uh, maybe I'll leave it up to you to introduce our guests. Thanks very much, Dave. Yeah, so we're very excited to have with us today Dr. Jeff Copeland. And Dr. Copeland, uh, as some of you may know, um, from 1998 to 2002, served as the director for uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, Since then, he's been at Emory University with us here in Atlanta. Um, where he uh, has served since 2006 as the director of Emory's Global Health Institute. And so Dr. Copeland will be able to help us, uh, as Dave was saying, um, take a look at public health beyond the U.S. borders. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing as part of your role there at Emory over the last decade, decade and a half, and and uh, how you've been kind of experiencing 2020 from from your vantage point? Uh, sure, I uh, w- went from CDC to Emory in 2002 for what I thought would be a few weeks of acclimations before I found what I really needed and wanted to do, and uh, and I've still been <laughs> at Emory for a nigh on to uh, hitting over 18 years now. Maybe I'm still looking. Um, during that period of time, I continued with my underlying interest, obviously, in both public health and in global health, uh, but also um, was able to enjoy a return to clinical medicine and being in a large uh, healthcare uh, delivery system and uh, with several attached hospitals. um, I had been away from that, doing public health work, working in populations, doing global health work in countries around the world. And it was nice to be able to keep those, uh, but also to have the the interesting dynamic of the US healthcare non-system playing out uh, before me and next to me and around me uh, in uh, hospitals and doctors who wear white coats and carry stethoscopes that they actually know how to use and can hear things in them. And so all that was exciting and kind of a um, a return to previous uh, academic pleasures. So um, since that time, I've worked on, um, we've created some large projects, one of which was an organization that we, for shorthand as um, the global CDCs, CDCs of the world, and it's called the International Association of National Public Health Institutes. A mouthful, um, uh, not easily um, digested, but what it is, is, is it's institutions like the CDC in the US, like Public Health England, Public Health France, um, not you know countries around the world that have institutions like CDC. And uh, my thought for, for many years before that had been, wouldn't it be good to get these groups together and share information and knowledge uh, to the benefit of both themselves and to other countries in the world? 
So I've spent a fair amount of time on that and enjoyed it. We just had our annual meeting, which instead of being in an overseas city, and this year was supposed to be Rio, uh, we had it, of course, like everything else, in front of our computer screens on Zoom. And um, we started this program with about a dozen members, a dozen different countries, directors of their global health institutes, uh, rather national public health institutes. And um, at this meeting that we just finished yesterday, we had 118 different countries represented. It's very gratifying and people are doing good work. And it's interesting to hear how countries with much less resources than we have in the U.S. have been coping with the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic and doing remarkably well. Uh, have also been involved in some other large projects, um, child health, causes of child de death in children, um, uh, other projects as well, but lots of work with students and coming up with creative and novel programs for uh, student instruction, um, programs for junior faculty to get them out in the field and uh, enhance their own careers, uh, and in pulling together different components of a university and demonstrating the uh, interconnectivity of um, global health, whether you're in the law school or the business school, or an undergraduate majoring in history, or of course the medical school, nursing school, or schools of public health. But our program here is across the university, uh, which is um, can be challenging, but always gratifying. Well, you are the perfect person to address some of the topics we have in mind here, because in, in prior episodes of uh, this podcast series, we've been dealing with the the topic of the fragmentation of the U.S.'s approach to public health, you know, as uh, in terms of governance and systems and processes and staffing. And and now we have a chance to talk to you about the comparison of the U.S. approach to public health with those of your colleagues from other countries. And the the International Association of Public Health Institutes is a is is the uh, kind of a defining kind of institution to help illustrate that. Uh, to start out with, in, in comparison with other countries, how would you articulate the U.S.'s strategic health outcomes with those of other countries? What, how would you define the similarities and differences? Well, as soon as you put public health in the title of an entity, although CDC does public health, somehow they haven't added in uh, that piece of um, the verbiage in there. Nevertheless, um, the, the underlying commonality is a concern for improving health in a, on a population-wide basis. We go to our internist, or you take your child to the pediatrician, uh, or you go to see a specialist. It's um, you are the major point of interest and concern to that healthcare provider at that moment. You may leave in a half hour and someone else takes your place, but nevertheless, it's largely focused on, on the individual. In some cases, there may be a family in where an illness is affecting more than one, but the underlying issue is a targeted um, person or small group of people, very small, usually related. Um, public health, uh, its patient is the community. 
So it is, if you're the chief public health official in the state of North Carolina, then you're worried about the health of all the people in North Carolina, uh, and so on and so forth. That is a, a, that premise and that basis for the field is true in most other countries, rich or poor, in Africa, South America, Asia, or wherever, um, that you have some kind of a structure that at some point in its interests include those of a city, a region, a county, a state, depending on where you are. So uh, from that point on, uh, you see a very different uh, manifestation of what that public health action is based on geography, culture, history, politics, uh, and very much um, economics, uh, fiscal um, flexibility. Uh, the U.S., the system largely flows much like um, the larger pattern of government with at the closest to the field and the action is um, the, in most places, a, a county or town health department. Um, in some cases, that might be a, a city health department, but it's basically local, county, town, city. Moving on to the next higher level, which is state, and then at, at, in the U.S., the primary public health agency is the CDC. But of course, keeping in mind that there's the Food and Drug Administration, which do everything they do is piece of public health that gets handed in. There's the National Institutes of Health, which largely does research of a basic or clinical kind but nevertheless takes an active role in improving public health by the background information they provide and in some instances by specific programs that they're responsible for. So we go from field, city, county, uh, to state, to federal. And other countries have things like that, but they may not, they may not be connected. For example, you can have a country where there are some local public health activities, but they aren't necessarily under the uh, immediate supervision, shall we say, of uh, the state and, and similarly then to the uh, federal level. That's true in the U.S. as well. Uh, CDC investigators cannot invite themselves in to an outbreak or to a problem. They have to get an invitation from the state health department, the state health director then sends a note, a letter, email saying, we invite you to join us in trying to solve and cope with this problem. And then things go from there. Um, and so how that plays in different countries, the relationship between those pieces is different in some countries. There's more research focus in some countries of these national public health institutes. Um, so it really varies in some cases, minor variations, and in some cases, quite major variations. Hey, do, you, do you notice uh, any kind of fundamental differences in effectiveness based on these different models in different challenges? For example, is one model more effective at delivering uh, you know, population health outcomes in terms of chronic disease versus another is better at managing infectious diseases, or is that 
is that too simplistic a question? No, I think it's it's good. I think that um, places vary and they'll vary over time. That uh, you know that the the um, staff changes with their interests. You may get the director of a state department, health department, or a city health department who brings a particular focus or con concern over the opioid epidemic or um, the growth in numbers of people with diabetes in a city or changing health risks based on um, increasing prevalence of unhealthy behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. All those things go into a fresh dynamic. And with that, you get differences in risk. So some states have higher rates of, and, and some counties in some states will have higher rates of um, obesity or, uh, or diabetes or other things. Some may have a, uh, do much worse on um, healthy dentition. Uh, and it may depend on programs they have, uh, how they allocate resources, interest of the players and parties uh, uh, involved, rural versus urban, uh, cultural and ethnic differences. So um, you can't walk into a county health department in the U.S. Um, without seeing some variation in what they do, how they do it, and what their outcomes are. So, Dr. Copeland, it's certainly hard uh, right now to have a conversation about public health and, you know, not think about um, the significant influence that the pandemic is having, you know, on all of our lives. And and the pandemic has really revealed so much and reminded us of so many things. Um, and among those is really just how central the global health environment is to U.S. public health. Um, what would you say are the, the most important ways that global health issues affect the U.S.? Well, right now, uh, is, uh, unfortunately, uh, a terrible time for all of us, but provides a good example of um, how an organism can um, affect our daily lives, our economy, our businesses, the way we live and think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, the, the dominant factor now. And it also illustrates the unbelievable interconnectivity of the world. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not just, you know, a typhoid outbreak in City X. It's not just um, uh, a insect-borne viral infection in the southern part of the country. It is everyone's at risk some more than others uh, and it's everyone in our country and our neighbors our neighbors are you know in early days of public health if i'm, I'm sitting in atlanta our neighbors would have been uh, tennessee and north carolina south carolina alabama and florida um, our neighbors now are burkina Faso, uh, sri lanka um, Bangkok, uh, you know, Tierra del Fuego. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's everybody, and uh, that's a good thing in a lot of ways. It's uh, makes life interesting, and it's um, it permits us to see problems in one place where we could be helpful, or or they see problems with us that they've solved. All that's great, uh, but when it comes to a very tricky, rapidly spreading infectious disease, uh, it ain't so great. 
and it means that um, it's the old you can run but you can't hide. Uh, you know that this virus seeks out places where um, there are uh, where it may, it may not have been before. It seeks out fresh targets, uh, and has been very successful of it. And the needed actions at this point are, are ones that are technically um, simple. I mean, it's it sounds like you're doing almost nothing. You know, more space between other people when you walk. Stay out of indoor, closed indoor places. Um, wear masks, which are non-technical. There's no digital readout. There's no fancy chrome bumpers on them. They're just either paper or cloth but do their job. So there's a range of things we can do uh, and um, and to help control it and have been documented to help control it. And then the crisis becomes one of um, basically working with a population. Remember, that's what we come back to all the time, coming back to that population and saying, you know, these are important. These things make a difference, but there is a price to pay. They're inconvenient or they're not what you're used to or you're tired of them or they have interfere in some way with something you're trying to do. Um, but uh, that becomes the challenge then. It's the organism, what it thrives in and um, how we best apply the, the simple limited steps we have to deal with it, but ones that make a difference and put those into play. Mm -hmm. You know, as you think about that um, and the, the kind of increasing um, recognition of uh, global influence um, on public health in the US, what important skills do you think the public health workforce needs to have to, to operate in this, this environment? Well, the work, it's, it ends up being a workforce rather than one individual because um, the skill sets and the information needed uh, for an event like we're experiencing now, um, you need a team and you need a team that works well together and that all the attributes, whether that team is an orchestra or a football squad or anything that's a team uh, event with, with a goal at the end to produce beautiful, perfect rendition of a Beethoven piece, or whether it's to score 20 uh, goals, um, that 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 requires um, being a little less bit less of an individual. You don't, if you're the you know second violin in the orchestra, you don't leap up in the middle of it and decide you're going to give a rendition of the um, Devil Came Back to Georgia or whatever. <laughs> Uh, as much as you might be tempted to and find that really gratifying, <laughs> ain't gonna happen. Uh, and um, and similarly with any of the other analogies, um, you, you've got to have a game plan. Uh, you have to have a script or a uh, composition and you need to have everyone know their part and um, in some instance, and, and you have to be able to, I don't want to use the word convince, but People both have to be receptive to hearing what role they can play, and then the nature of that role needs to be conveyed to them such that they want to do it and they recognize the need for it, 
and indeed in this instance where it involves all these mitigation uh, activities uh, face mask uh, distance between people uh, staying at home as much as possible um, hygienic behavior all that uh, needs to be out there and it's not do it because I'm telling you to do it it's doing it is do it because it's good for you it's good for the people that live around you and you know it's good for people who you don't know and can't identify and don't know their names but we're all in this together and we have some common features that's why we live here and we kind of have more common beliefs than we have common um, disagreements and this is a time to pull together and do this kind of thing and that has to get conveyed and when not conveyed clearly um, your one of your major tools is removed from uh, from your hands and the outcome unfortunately is not just inconvenient or unpleasant uh, it's tragic and final you know the the divisions in american society that you know we've observed uh have 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 driven some of some of those uh, behaviors or the lack of receptivity that you've you've just referred to, Dr. Copeland. Um, have you seen other nations with you know similar or analogous political difficulties or divisions that have impacted their public health performance? Well, it's a timely question for me because we just had our meeting of the of this organization, the Amphi the International Association of National Public Health Institutes. And we heard from, you know, over 100 countries that were present, what they were doing and what, what worked. And it's striking the number of countries with a real, real shortage of uh, funding. Uh, uh, the, the, the struggle on a regular basis have done so well uh, in this particular outbreak. And that involves um, encouraging the population to take advantage of these um, behaviors and then in some instances um, making it so if folks don't uh, then there is a price to pay of some kind for that whether a fine or a reprimand or whatever it might be um, i was struck because uh, my, my colleague one of my colleagues who is former director of the dutch National Public Health Institute, which in, I don't speak Dutch, but their initials for it is RIVM. And it's, I've worked there before and visited before, and it's really a first-rate institution for a relatively small country. Uh, and they provide uh, similar services to those of a much larger country like um, the US. Uh, and he said they were having a strong pushback on people uh, adopting this um, mitigation behavior, not everyone, not even a majority, but a large enough fraction of the population that it was really distracting to control efforts and getting things done there. So that was surprising to hear. Um, one sees, though, a number of places, Finland, Norway, uh, doing quite well. And then you'll say, well, those are wealthy countries. They're in the north. They don't have a very large population or five million or six million people. Uh, but they're doing much better than we uh, with a much larger population. But at 
but also many more assets uh, than many of these places uh, have. Um, I think the jury's out on how this is all going to go, but I think that um, the advent of a vaccine is wonderful, fantastic, um, a, a, an amazing accomplishment, um, but that isn't the be all and end all. I think the behavior part still has to be there and we have to prepare a population for being receptive to vaccine use. Uh, you know, yes, you, know, you can give it to one or two or 10 or 50 people, but until you get into much larger numbers, some of the problems we have in terms of businesses opening, travel, comfort and being in a hotel, as, to be, or as opposed to being at home, um, people whose jobs are crucial to them to pay the rent and to get the food on the table for their families uh, and the ability to have their kids go back to school because uh, there's no one to stay with them at home. All these factors, um, yes, will require vaccination, successful vaccination programs, but they will also require uh, for the foreseeable future and maybe, maybe much longer than we think on some of these uh, healthier behaviors related to keeping people separated um, and, um, and keeping transmission as low as possible of this virus from one person to other people. Well, Dr. Copeland, uh, you know, another uh, area that um, we increasingly understand to have uh, global impact is, uh, is the area of climate change. And um, I think another thing that's really just becoming increasingly apparent is the role of climate change as an influence on health. Um, so as climate kind of begins to take its place as a policy priority, um, how, would, how should the public health impacts of climate change be addressed? Well, first of all, there, there needs to be um, a broad consensus mm -hmm. that climate change is real uh, uh, it's significant when it occurs. There are plenty of manifestations of it now, and it has a broad societal impact, um, including a major component of which is health. So uh, whether that is um, warmer water levels in the oceans, a change in flora and fauna based on that, are in the health community are saying eat more fish it's healthy for you mm -hmm. and uh, if things that alter the availability of fish or affect growth of staple crops such as wheat or corn you, you can the, the interplay of um, what climate change just in terms of temperature and weather not not even accounting for the huge disasters the multiple hurricanes and typhoons that are occurring and cause damage, physical damage to people, their property. Um, but even these more subtle ones where you say, so the water temperature is, you know, three degrees higher. What difference does that make? Well, you're going to soon get a long list of the differences that makes and how it affects uh, our lives. So never mind that. I mean, that, all those are real and major. There's no shortage of, of other major um, influences on our health. Um, most of the day, 
not having to think too much about um, insects biting us or bothering us, um, mosquitoes. Uh, and yet the, uh, the mosquitoes in particular are historically great trans transfers. They, they assist in the movement of viruses or other um, organisms from one person to another. Mm -hmm. And the end result is places where um, you haven't been prey to a given disease suddenly, not suddenly, but over these years uh, are. I live in uh, obviously Atlanta and in Georgia when um, during up through World War II, the southeastern United States was uh, in essence uh, a tropical locale because uh, there were the, the mosquitoes were there that could transmit yellow fever or dengue or chikungunya, so Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. And there were uh, mosquitoes for Anopheles mosquitoes, which transmit malaria. So if you, know, if you go to move somewhere and someone says, well, you know, that part of the US has malaria, you couldn't say that after you know, 1945, 1946. And in fact, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention began as a um, much smaller um, circumscribed government organization called Malaria Control and War Areas, MCWA. And um, I have colleagues at this stage, their grandparents or, uh, or, or passed on, but that growing up in the Southeast, they had malaria. Uh, and um, it's treatable, but it's something you'd want to avoid. If you were a real estate agent, you'd prefer not to have people that you're in a malaria zone or not. So, and if you have uh, to disclose that on, in a uh, real estate advertisement. There you go. Yeah, so uh, yeah, there's just, you know, as you go from place to place, air, soil, water, um, the, the influences of uh, climate change and what it can do to intermediary steps, whether it's uh, a crop or another animal population or or introduction of unwanted um, uh, biting insects or you know, a range of other things. It will have an impact in different ways in different places, but the overall sum of them is, is not in our best health or economic interest. When we think about those kind of localized, you know, or regional issues, right? And, and we think about global health, the, the question occurs as to, you know, obviously you mentioned the CDC being, a, you know, the premier federal agency uh, that connects with its peer organizations around the world. But do, do uh, state or local jurisdictions in the U.S. that 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 kind of exist along our borders have to take health conditions across the border into account. So if you're in you know, New Mexico or you're in Montana, right, you're a border state. Does that does that impinge on on their public health mission and how they deal with it? Uh, yeah, there. In fact, in the federal government, I'm I'm not sure. I would hope it still is a program that's continuing, but it did for decades, was a um, basically a 
focus on border um, health issues, uh, straight up, and it, it largely focused on our southern border borders, uh, just because uh, they tend to be warmer and health issues are more prominent in that environment than they are in, you know, between Mississippi, or rather uh, Minnesota and uh, Vermont and uh, various uh, parts of Canada. So an example would be dengue fever, which is spread by in, uh, getting having a, a bite from a particular type of mosquito, Aedes aegypti. Um, dengue fever is the most unpleasant disease, which you'd really prefer not to have. It's, it, uh, it's names include break bone fever, break back fever. Uh, it, uh, um, it, it comes in a, like in a camel hump and it seems to go away and then comes back again. Um, and yet, and, and there's been a, 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 an outbreak of it, you know, going on, on and off for a couple of decades uh, now. And, um, it, but at, in some places where you have sister towns, one on one side of the, uh, you know, the Texas border and the other on the uh, Mexican border uh, facing it, um, and where the concern was uh, the heavy uh, disease toll that was taking place in Mexico was soon going to hit the U.S. It's varied by other circumstances. So whereas in in parts of Florida and parts along the whole southeastern coast, um, most people have air conditioning and, and if not, still have screened uh, housing. And yet, some of the neighboring, um, that's from the U.S. side, for cultural reasons or construction re reasons or economic reasons, or just because it wasn't a problem before, some of our neighbors across the border are more likely to have open, open no screens, uh, not, um, uh, not a, uh, uh, a program of insect control there, and that because of that, uh, there's much more transmission of the disease person to person on the other side. Um, so, yeah, there 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 are issues, but on the whole, uh, as with most diseases, people tend there tends to be a, a desire to categorize a disease as coming from somewhere else, and then blaming that country for the disease, whereas they're the victim as much as anyone else is. And uh, and it, we ne and we I was I won't say never, but virtually never blame it on our own locale. So if some new virus were to spring up um, here uh, outside my house in Atlanta, um, I wouldn't rush to go name it the, you know, the Atlanta virus or something. It, it seemed people seem to derive some level of comfort from naming it after somebody else and <laughs> after someone else. And that's, that's hundreds and hundreds of years old when uh, in the early days of sexually transmitted disease, it would be called the French disease by the Spanish and the Spanish disease by the French, et cetera. So um, where we, we are not um, the models of perfect health around the world. And so much like um, there's a parallel in non-infectious diseases to things that, that we do that 
may encourage people in other populations into unhealthy outcomes. So uh, whether it's composition of um, chain restaurants that we send around the world where the fat and salt content are so much higher than they would have if they ate their own normal diet. Uh, we are not innocent in, in all this. And, and it's rather than innocent and guilty, hey, we're all in this together. Um, if you can solve this and do a better job in Nigeria over this problem, it helps us. And if we, we should aim to do the same, that helps you. And this isn't kind of starry-eyed, Pollyanna-ish, um, do-gooderism. It's hardcore, pragmatic. Um, if you care about yourself and the people around you, having healthy populations elsewhere is important, uh, in some cases more important than things going on right in your own neighborhood at a given time. Well, that's really well said. Uh, Dr. Copeland, that, that's a, uh, a great thought. Um, the, the last, maybe the one last perspective we'd love to tease out of you before we let you go. Um, you know, messaging is so important in motivating our fellow citizens to, to, you know, take the right actions over time, right, and, and to keep us all healthy. And as you said, we're all in this together. Uh, what, are, what are some of the examples of, of good or really creative public health messaging you've seen in other countries that maybe we could, we could steal from? That's good. Um, well, let me, mentioning the word messaging, uh, pushes me to comment on the nature of the messages. So we're talking about health messages, and usually you want to convey in that there's a danger or there is value in your doing something, and you should. we would like you to minimize the things that are risky to your health, and we'd like you to maximize the things that can improve your health. Now, I'm, you know, in the last, what, 30 years, uh, social media have provided an input into the messages. What should those messages be? And in disseminating the messages. In some cases, terrific. Um, CDC has a, a wonderful web, website where you can get lots of information. Um, NIH, uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, whatever university is near you probably has a, a important things on its website. Unfortunately, there are also um, things that are pure fantasy, um, uh, things that are not documented in any way, but that present themselves in a quasi-scientific manner uh, that uh, lead the population to downplay doing things they need to do and upplay having them uh, serve as a vocal um, accelerator and expander of things that just aren't true. Uh, and so the stakes there are, are can be high. So messaging uh, is, first of all, be sure what your message is, is correct. If, if, um, if the message is, you know, we should all be doing these uh, steps that mitigate the, the further spread of COVID-19, Fine, if those make sense in this documentation, or it comes from a reliable source, uh, and it comes from, and if you get something that comes from more than one reliable source, from from the Academy of Pediatricians, from the uh, American Medical Association, from CDC, from FDA, 
then you can kind of feel you're on the right track. And if you still aren't quite sure of that, you can check with your doctor's office okay, if, you, if you go to one regularly or call up the local health department. Uh, again, reputable sources. Do things change such that the message has to change over time? Yes. You know, when it's a new disease, you don't have all the answers on day one. So on day five and 10 and 20, you may have to make major changes in what you're saying. It's not because we're stupid. Um, it's not because um, we were purposely trying to obfuscate the right thing to do. It's just the nature of the investigation. So that's where it pays to stay up to date, tuned, etc. And um, and then how to deliver that message clearly. Um, uh, have it repeated in different ways. Don't have different messages coming out from the government where uh, one group is that you know, CDC is advocating something NIH is advocating something and then a major political figure is saying doesn't really matter. You just shot that message in the foot. That's that's the end of that. So uh, consistency is an important part of the message. Um, up to dateness, if there's such a word, is should be part of it. Uh, and uh, accuracy and verification need to be part of it. All that's there. And if you can make it mildly entertaining, such you can such that you can watch it without scaring you out of your wits or uh, it seems to make sense and you feel better after you've had it, all the better. Well, words to live by. Uh, I think we're going to leave it there. Everybody, thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast series on the extended public health enterprise. Thanks to Nicola. Again, thanks to our <laughs> guest, uh, Dr. Jeff Copeland. And we'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.